to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. May the word of God continue to increase and prevail mightily. I was at Fenway Park a couple years ago. This brother had a big old plywood sign on that had been painted with scenes, mostly of hell, I guess, flames shooting up from the bottom, shadowy characters falling off cliffs, and horror, and big letters across the top of the board said, heaven or hell, your choice. And this other dude, I saw him, he spied him from a little ways away, and he walks over to him, he's got right up in the guy's face, and he says, I choose hell. I, the, the brother's heart was in the right place, but I wanted to tell him, your theology is all wrong. And that's what our message is about this morning. That is what our message is about this morning. We're in a series on the doctrines of grace, <clears throat> what we might call Calvinism. And the acronym TULIP will remind you, right, total depravity, as Todd preached last week, unconditional election, our topic today. Next week you will hear of limited atonement, followed by irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. And then finally, Gary will preach on given the truth of these things, why evangelize? Wayne Grudem states the doctrine this way, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Well, what is foreseen merit? future goodness or some positive quality that God sees in anyone. So, for clarity's sake, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any future goodness or positive quality God sees in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. That word election, unfortunately, has uh, some baggage attached to it that we all know because when we think of election, it really means just the opposite of what we're talking about this morning. Right? Because we elect people based on some quality that we see and like in them. Otherwise, we would never elect them. We look at a field of candidates and we look at the one that best represents our own priorities or the things that we want them to accomplish on our behalf. Something that they can do for us. So... Perhaps a better word would be unconditional selection or unconditional choice, not to confuse the terms. But since Scripture is filled with the word elect, we'll stay with that term. I'm just going to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, where we see the, some of the origin of this doctrine. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And he could have gone on to give her a number of other conditions that were not the basis for his choosing them to be the people that he would be for his own special treasure and for his own possession. I saw a story in the news some time ago. These two women were basically dumpster divers. So they, had, they, they found a way to make profit out of going into dumpsters. They would go behind craft shops or they would go behind other places that display home goods or they'd go to some steel place and they'd, they'd go into the dumpsters into the twisted wreckage of aluminum and steel and chairs and whatever else they could find and they would turn it into something. They would turn it into something else. Are you picking this up here? Are you getting further away? This is on, so we're having trouble with this. Yeah. Um, save this preacher prone to wander. <laughs> I step away again. Just, just do that same. My wife back there. So then they turn this stuff into some kind of a treasure. Treasure? Treasure? Good. So they would turn this into some marketable item, which they could then turn around make a profit off of. Mother's Day this year, my son calls me, and he's he's says, I got something for Mom in the back of my pickup truck. So the pickup truck shows up, and I just see this hunk of teal-colored, rust-spotted steel thing. And I can see that it's weighing down, like it's pushing into the grass. This thing is heavy. And so I'm thinking, oh, great, i got to move this thing. And I have no idea what it is, so we get it out, and she sets it up on the porch. And, I mean, this thing is just not even worthy of displaying a roadkill collection. It's just a... But... But now it bears witness to her kimness. It's not that she saw potential in the piece of steel or this thing. It, and it's just this big, it's got all these slots in it and everything. It looks like something from like a 1920s post office box or something. But So it's not that she saw the potential in the steel, but she knew of her potential to turn it into something that reveals her sense of, of warmth and welcome and hospitality. We don't come into the porch and praise the peace. We don't say, oh, peace, you are wonderful. Oh, look at you. We say, oh, look at that. Who did Kim? Did you do that? It looks like it belongs in like better homes and gardens now. Same with these other ladies. We don't, we commend that. We, 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 we praise the glory of their grace, so to speak, in the work. Now, I can speak for myself, and I look at most of you, and I know most of you, and so I can say for the most of you that when God shows us, he went dumpster diving. <laughs> That's clearly stated in Scripture. That was the topic of last week's message on total depravity. And it's affirmed in the text this morning in so many words. In fact, it's quite clear why God chose us in his word this morning, as we'll see. Got a couple of quotes I want to share with you about this doctrine of unconditional election. 
The first is from a brother named David Dye. He said, I say this in a very cautious manner, so as not to speak disparagingly of the atonement, but there is a sense in which election is more important than blood redemption. How can that be? Here is the reason. To deny blood redemption is to close the door of mercy to man. But to deny God the right to choose his own family is to rule him out of the Bible. To deny election is to rule God out of the Bible, to rule God out of his universe, to deny that his will is supreme. It is to strip him of his sovereignty and reduce him to a mere speculator on the sideline. Not spectator, but speculator, because God would then just have to speculate as to who might or might not be good enough to be saved, to be redeemed. A.W. Pink. No doctrine is so detested by proud human nature as this one, which makes nothing of the creature and everything of the Creator. Yes, at no other point is the enmity of the carnal mind so blatantly and hotly evident. As I am wont to do, I had a political discussion with someone at work recently, and we're on different sides. And so I took the opportunity to say, Joe Biden makes Donald Trump look like Mother Teresa. (laughs) And her face contorted. And her neck sort of went down. Her shoulders came up like a cobra ready to strike. After a meeting a few nights ago with a couple of my colleagues on the school committee, we got into a discussion after that had nothing to do with the meeting. But one of them on the school committee says to me, you know, we need to do away with things like Christians on the Supreme Court. (sighs) You know, Paul talks about bowels of mercies. (laughs) bowels of anger. I was viscerally shaken by it, as was my colleague at work. That's the kind of reaction that some have to this doctrine that says that God chooses some to save and others to pass on to everlasting destruction and damnation. In fact, the last time we preached on this here in this church, a dear sister that attended here for many years left. It's that kind of a doctrine. So we're separated by 2,000 years from the original audience that received this, to whom it's written, but we share some of the same deep need for its truth, and we can learn some of those things from the book of Acts when we look at the Ephesians in the book of Acts, things that we need to know today, things that are relevant for us today, things we have in common with that original audience and that ancient people back there in Ephesus. We find, first of all, in Acts chapter 18, just going to share a few verses, verses 24 through 26, Apollos is preaching in Ephesus. Apollos was a man who was mighty in the spirit. And it says here in verses 24 through 26, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught things 
He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. If we are going to be holy and blameless in Christ before God, to the praise of his glorious grace, we need to know the way of God more accurately. Chapter 19, verse 26, after Paul's time in Ephesus, we see this silversmith say, he says, And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So though we in our culture so much don't fashion idols, our concept of God can indeed contradict the truth about God. Right? And to challenge those false concepts of God, even when some respond with riotous zeal, is part of living holy and blameless in Christ to the praise of God's glorious grace. There are people that say that what we preach from Scripture about God's election contradicts when indeed they are wrong. In verse chapter, last one, chapter 20, verses 29 through 30. Again, over in Ephesus, Paul leaving. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Anyone that would detract from the sovereignty of God and salvation leaves open the door for wolves to come in the back. You know, one of the big issues in our, in our cultures today is the whole trans thing. There are two sexes, male and female. There is not a continuum of sexes. But, to introduce the idea as has been introduced that there is a continuum opens the door for people to come in and tell young people who might otherwise just be bearing with the changes that take place in their bodies as a result of puberty and other things that are going on and expressing their discomfort that are being told, well, prepubescent boy, perhaps you're a girl after all, right? So if you deny the foundational fundamental thing, you leave open the door for all kinds of problems, and that's true in the church as well. To deny this doctrine, as we can see, if we were to study Scripture, I won't get into leaves open the door for insecurity about salvation, leaves open the door for prosperity gospel, leaves up the door for any number of heresies. This is a foundational document. This is a foundational, excuse me, doctrine. I like dominoes. I don't play it like, I don't know how you play it, like lining numbers up to numbers, but I used to love setting up like a hundred or so dominoes. And you make these fancy little patterns, and you tip over the first one, and if everything is properly positioned, the rest of them fall also. Right? The doctrines of grace are sort of doctrinal dominoes. And and the, the doctrine of unconditional election, that's the first one to fall. And that's the one that knocks down all the others. That's what puts all the others in place. That's what makes unconditional election 
is why limited atonement happens, which is going to happen next week. It is why God uses irresistible grace to draw his chosen to him. And because he's done that, he's also going to cause them to persevere. And you're going to hear about those things coming as well. Verse 3 in this informs us, as does uh, verse 5. Verse 3 tells us, that being chosen, and verse 5 tells us, being predestined for adoption to sons is to be blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what it is first and foremost, to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the second chapter of this same letter, Paul says, God raised, the Father raised us up with Jesus and seated us in the heavenly places beyond where death can touch us any longer, beyond where the power of sin can have us any longer. And so our spiritual blessing, the great spiritual blessing that we have, is this truth. There's other spiritual blessings, righteousness, the church. Those are all part and part, but the the main spiritual blessing in here is this, that we have been chosen by God, as we'll see, before the foundation of the world, we have been predestined to adoption as his children. That is the spiritual blessing that precedes all other blessings and from which all other blessings are blessed. And so, because of that, Paul started out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed there means extolled, praised, excitedly spoken of. Be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says he has blessed us. And in that case, the word blessed means, you know, we've received some great benefit. We've received something that has been bestowed upon us. So, you know, there's a certain sense in which this really is not a hard doctrine at all. It's quite wonderful. Why would anyone deny such a thing as this when Paul says that this is our great spiritual blessing? What moved God to do this? Why did God choose for himself certain people? Second Timothy 1.9 says it here in the text, according to the purpose of his will. And then he says in his letter to Timothy, the second chapter, first verse, and there are many scriptures that reinforce this, but because we only have so much time and energy, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He did this also because of his love in verse 4. In love, he predestined us to adoption. Some of your translations may put in love at the end of we should be holy and blameless before him in love. The period in this sentence belongs after... I'm sorry, the, the period in this sentence belongs after him. In other words, holiness and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us to adoption as sons. His will and his love were bound up together in his predestining, choosing purposes. So he did it for his own good purpose and for the own pleasure of his good will and because of absolutely nothing in us. And when did God do this? The scripture says, before the foundation of the world, which is to say before creation before any material thing was made, 
depending on your point of view, that was 10,000 years ago or 15 billion years ago before that. God determined whom he would choose. You know, God does things in a particular order. Why did he do this first? He didn't create first, and then people fall into sin, and then he decided to elect some. No, he elected for himself a people before the foundation of the world. Adam and Eve were going to fall. Humankind was going to follow in the rebellion. God knew this. How was God going to fulfill his own creation mandate for humans to bear his image? How can man ever bear the image of a holy, blameless God? How was fallen man ever going to be able to represent God, to glorify God? You know, glorifying God, it's, it's, it's our oxygen. Glorifying God is... We can't exist without that. How could we possibly do that? It'd be like me representing the NBA. <laughs> How did God do this? By His sovereign grace. The text says, by His sovereign grace. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, He decided to save some who would be holy and blameless before him. Before God created a world that would violate his holiness, he chose some, including us here, who believe that we should be, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Should be. That word should there can throw us off. But Brother Joel Beakey has a helpful comment. He said the Greek syntax, and syntax is just, you know, language order. All right, so we talk a certain way. They spoke a little differently in, you know, ancient Greece as as other languages as well. The the verb and subject and adjective order are in different places. So anyway, all that to say that this particular the way that the word should uses here does not communicate our obligation to be holy. It communicates God's purpose to make us holy and blameless. So when it says. He created, he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Might as well say, so that we will be holy and blameless. And blameless is not sinless, but it certainly is. We consistently and regularly deal with those things that are trouble in our lives. There's nothing, to be blameless is to be in a position where nothing can be said about you that's ongoing. Boy, this person continues to do that. They're not repenting. They're not doing it. Blameless, not sinless. In chapter 5 of this book, we read, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Image bearers are imitators. And so the goal of election then is to make holy, blameless people before God, and this is to the praise of His glorious grace. God's unmerited divine favor, His Kindness to us on steroids. God gave us this this grace in Christ. In Christ. It It is a grace that Paul says that is lavished upon us. It's poured out in overflowing excess. And it accomplishes, 
It accomplishes redemption through the blood of Christ, the text says here. Now that will be covered next week in limited atonement. It is provided for the chosen. This, this redemption that we have through his blood, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is the chosen for whom this is, this is done. And we need this forgiveness in order to be holy and blameless before him. Otherwise, we carry guilt and an unclean conscience, and we cannot serve that way, the book of Hebrews tells us. Chapters 4 through 6 of this book give a lot of detail about living a holy, blameless life before God. So this verse tells us that the commands in in chapters 4 through 6 The exhortations and the admonitions are impossible to carry out unless we realize, unless we realize that we were chosen and predestined to adoption and to holiness and blamelessness before God. The psalmist says in 138.8, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. St. Augustine said, God, command what you will and then give what you command. And so I ask the scripture, and I hope you ask the scripture questions. It's helpful to meditate. Why did God reveal this truth of his sovereign choice rather than just simply choosing us, redeeming us, and letting that fruit grow? Why does the scripture include verses 4 through the first part of verse 6? So why not say... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood. A couple of years ago, I went on a deep sea fishing trip with my son and his company. It became very apparent very soon that half of the boat took Dramamine and the other half didn't. The half that didn't take it, it was not a pretty picture. When you go deep sea fishing, there's wind. So when the guys and ladies that didn't take the Dramamine do their thing over the edge of the boat, you just got to stand back and not catch what's coming in the wind. Knowing that God chose and predestined some is our theological and spiritual Dramamine for our earthly sojourn and our pilgrimage on earth, for our high sea adventure. We need to know. It's not, it's not sufficient that God did it. God wants us to know how he did He wants us to know that he did it. He wants us to know that he did it this way. He doesn't want us thinking that we had some part in it. He doesn't want us believing that there's something that we brought to the table. He doesn't want us thinking that there was somewhere down the road where he said, you know, that Tom, when he comes a couple thousand years from now, he's a pretty good guy overall. I could use him in my church. No. He found you, same place he found me. Chose you and me from the same garbage stock. How so? How, how is it that this is so? Well, it keeps us praising God rather than men and women. 
And praise is good for our souls. You know, anytime we think that someone only has a part in our success, to that same extent, we give credit for that part in our success that they took. We take credit for the other part. This isn't, this is all over the Pharisees, isn't it? And God help us, us at times? Because God elects and predestines, we will be holy and blameless before Him. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Know how He does that? He chose us in Christ, in the Beloved, before the foundation of the world, so that everything else that would happen in this whole fallen universe would not keep us. And there's a lot of things that could keep us from holiness and blamelessness were it not for God's, as we'll learn from our brother Seth in a few weeks, persevering grace. This keeps us from biting and devouring one another. We think too much of ourselves and our opinions, how things should be. Here we have a foundational doctrine that shows us how God set forth everything, put everything in motion for our life as his elect people, which is to know first and foremost that he chose us and predestined us in advance to adoption as sons and daughters. That we're here entirely by sovereign grace. It's a truth that we need to know so that we don't become the people that think too highly of ourselves. If we were to think we had some role in God choosing us, we would exalt that quality and insert it into all our dealings. We would be vomiting our self-righteousness all over others. This, as we'll see from our brother Gary in a few weeks, also guarantees evangelistic success. This doctrine that God chooses some and predestines some to adoption of sons guarantees that the Great Commission will be successful. And that is a comfort. Those that have stood in the streets and been rejected a gazillion times, been ill-spoken of, had somebody step in their face and say, I choose hell. You know that guy that said, I choose hell? He may be one of the elect of God. That would be neat, bumping into him in the new heavens and the new earth. He'd be scrubbing off some board. What are you doing? I'm cleaning off this board. The one that I said something about. Praise Jesus. We will persevere to the end. And it should, if we stop and think about this, give us more grace toward other sinners. You know, there is things that we can do in the culture to make a difference. And we have to do that as holy, blameless people before God. And so we have to know that God has provisioned us for the task of being in the world. And part of our, part of our mission statement is, you know, doing certain things. I don't have the, what's the thing right in front of us here? We have our mission statement on. Caring for those in need of salt and light in this fallen world. If we're going to do that for the right reasons, the right way, at the right time, in the right place, with the right money, we need to be holy and blameless before God. In Christ. Everything is in Christ. We've been Christified. 
by the Father. He's placed us in Christ. This scripture, and there are others, they tell you, and you must get this, that believing anything but the sovereign, electing, predestinating grace of God walls you off from holiness and blamelessness before Him. The way God describes holiness and blamelessness. It's that important a doctrine. It's not a minor thing in Scripture. It's not a take it or leave it kind of thing. God says, be holy for I am holy. When God first revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, before he revealed his name to Moses, he revealed his holiness. Take off the shoes from your feet, for the ground upon which you are standing is holy ground. And nothing must come between you, Moses, and my holiness, not even one-eighth of an inch of leather sandal. To reject the unique and absolute sovereignty of God and salvation is to stand on holy ground in six-inch platform shoes. It is to impede holiness and blamelessness before him because knowing and believing this truth is included in what it means to be holy and blameless. We are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And these things are all interwoven in God's ways. But one of the things that we must do if we're going to be holy and blameless is to believe that we got that way because God predestined us to adoption as sons and chose us so that we would be holy and blameless before him to the praise of his glorious grace. We cannot praise the glory of God's grace without this. The text says so. So we say by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we can't say that without believing this. We cannot say, but for the grace of God, there go I, without believing this. At best we can say, but for the grace of God and my blood, sweat, and tears, there go I. So the only comment that remains really is potentially for unbelievers. The point of this message is not for you to ask or to consider whether or not you're one of the elect. This doctrine is not put out there for that purpose. You know? The scripture tells you that God commands you to repent and to believe that Jesus Christ was crucified and rose from the dead to defeat death and to overcome sin. And if you believe that, you find yourself among the elect of God. So don't trouble yourselves by asking, am I one of the elect? Peter talks to Christians at one point, says, make your calling and election sure. He doesn't mean sit around trembling all day about whether you're elect or not. He said, confirm it. Put it to good use. Stay on top of that. Stay on top of the fact that you are elect. Let that be the guiding principle for all your holiness and all the other exhortations that Peter gives. Make it sure. Make it firm. Make it count. If you are the elect of God this morning, this resonates deeply with you. 
It may be for some. I remember the first time I, there was a point in my life when I was working, a co-worker was Calvinistic, and I wasn't. And I said, I will never believe that. And when the time came for me to believe it, I expressed to the pastor at the time that I, this is, I, I'm dizzy with, with excitement over that. I can't believe this. And he said, well, it's called the Calvinistic second blessing. It's not, it's not like a real thing, right? But it is the realization that this truth is part of what God intends in the gospel to transform us from the material he found when he dove in the dumpster to being a display of holiness and blamelessness and righteousness before him. And God, we pray that you would bring that consistently and continually to pass in the lives of our friends and loved ones that know you not. We know among them are the elect. Let us, like Paul in our ministry, do all things for the sake of your elect. And we thank you that we are able, as your elect people, to partake of the meal today. And we pray that we would just find new ways to think about and, and ruminate on the fact that you chose and predestined people who genuinely were, according to your word, despite the fact that you chose them in advance, we were for a time sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Knowing we would be that, you chose us anyway. So we thank you for coming to us in Jesus, great God, glorious Savior. We thank you, Father, for drawing us to Jesus. For none can come to him, you said, except you draw to Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for revealing Jesus in our inner man and pray that you would, God, according to the riches of your glorious grace, continue to strengthen us in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith and we with all the elect saints may be able to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and so be filled up with all your fullness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.